This morning, uh, we have the privilege and opportunity to hear from uh, Reverend Tim Purcell. Reverend Tim Purcell, he is uh, the district superintendent for our uh, Iowa and Minnesota region of our Northwest District. Uh, the Northwest District is kind of like the Louisiana Purchase. It's from here to Alaska uh, is our Northwest District. So it's kind of broken up into a couple different parts. Tim is, uh, works with a lot of the churches and pastors here in this area. Uh, many of you know Tim. Tim has been uh, going on, I think, 15 years as our uh, district superintendent here and just had a great influence in my life. So many of the other uh, leaders and churches here, so many churches in our region that have been uh, revitalized uh, or, or, or church planting, a lot of um, young leaders that have been kind of developed over the recent last 10 or 15 years. And so we're just blessed to have him here to share with us today and uh, him and Don both. So make sure you say hi to them and get to know them if you haven't already. But um, uh, the, the Wesleyan Church is a great uh, denomination, biblically based, biblically sound, and does a great job of resourcing local churches and caring uh, for local churches and keeping them healthy. And Tim is a big part of that. So uh, today we're starting a new series, um, kind of just a two-week uh, series around Christmas called Family Christmas. Uh, just kind of exploring that idea of, of, of family and what it looks like both in our families, but also to be uh, a part of the larger family of God. And so Tim's going to kick this off. And why don't you welcome him as he comes? Thanks, bud. Thanks. Hey, good morning. Hey, those kids were amazing, weren't they? Didn't they sing? Can I point out something from the Captain Obvious department? Isn't it a blessing to be a part of a church that has so many kids? and young families, um, reaching the next generation. And uh, anyway, what a blessing, what a blessing, what a blessing. So as, as Peter pointed out, about 14 and a half years ago, I stepped away from leading a church to working with multiple churches and pastors, and I don't regret that decision. I love that, but I got to tell you, there's stuff that I miss about being a local church pastor. Um, I miss getting to do baptisms. Uh, I don't ever get to do that. A few years ago, I was kind of filling in as an interim in a church that was between pastors, and I got to do a baptism service. I was so excited, I nearly drowned the first two. <laughs> <clears throat> That's one of the things I miss. I also miss getting to preach on the great seasonal themes, Lent and Advent and Christmas. And so this really scratches an itch for me to be able to be a part of this little two-week series leading up to Christmas, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Peter only charged me 200 bucks <laughs> to be able to do this, so anyway. Hey, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, the genealogy of Jesus, you know. King James says, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Newer versions, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Confession. Confession is good for the soul, people. It's really rotten for the reputation, but it's really good for the soul. How many of you, when you get to Matthew chapter 1, skip over it? Come on, come on, let's confess our sins one to another. Or at least you just kind of breeze through it, right? 
You know, I, I get that. This passage at first glance is about as exciting as the purification laws in Leviticus. So you, you just kind of put, you just kind of put your brain in neutral and, and coast through it. But, but don't do that. Uh, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is God-breathed. How much? Yeah. And is useful. How much is useful? Now, now granted, some scriptures you got to dig a little more for it. It doesn't jump out at you. But all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, etc., etc. And that's true even in this one. Now, Matthew understood that. You got to remember that Matthew was writing to an audience that was primarily Jewish. And so he knew that every Jew knew that the Messiah had to come from the lineage of David and go and clear back. So, so when he wrote his gospel account and he sat down and said, okay, I got, I got to record this. How should I start this gospel account? I know I'm going to start it so that every Jew who reads this sees that lineage going back and would know that the Messiah came from the line of David. But the thing is, is I've, I've uh, wrestled with this passage of scripture a little bit and, and, and dug into it. I started to see what a clear picture this genealogy gives us of God. It tells us a lot about the character of God. And so that's what we're going to dig into this morning. And boring or not, saddle up. We're going to read the entire chapter. And I'm going to call on volunteers to come up and pronounce some of these. <laughs> names. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, Matthew goes off script a few times here. Um for very important reasons, and I'll point those out as we go through. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, there's the first off script. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, the father, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz. Here's another off script, whose mother was Rahab, <clears throat> Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There's another one. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I'm pointing those out because we got to think through why, why would Matthew go out of his way to point out those names? We're going to get to that. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahad, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Bayud, Bayud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, 
Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Whew. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile of the Christ. Three big picture, life-changing ideas that surface from Jesus' family tree, all of these regarding the character of God. First of all, God is undeniably sovereign. Sovereign means that he is the supreme ruler. He is in charge. He is in control. He gets the last word. Two thoughts here. He's always had a plan. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God wasn't pacing back and forth, chewing his fingernails, wondering what in the world am I going to do about the problem of sin. Matthew takes the genealogy back as far as Abraham. And remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was a messianic prophecy. That was a prophecy about Christ. He didn't just say all of the Jewish people will be blessed through you. All peoples would be blessed through you. And then 14 generations later, David is born. And there are prophecies that the Messiah would come from the house in the line of David. You can trace the story of the Messiah all throughout the Old Testament if you look for it. God has always had a plan for our redemption. And, and, and all through history, generation by generation by generation, he's been moving it forward. Uh, second thought under this area of, of sovereignty, he's always been in control. Plans are no good if you don't have control. That's why life can be so frustrating for us. We make our plans, but when it boils down to it, there's so much that's out of our control. But this genealogy is evidence that God was in control the entire time. Now, I, I don't want to make too much of this, and, and I, I don't want you to get all weirded out. But I ran into something a few years ago I thought was fascinating from a scholar named Ray Vanderlaan. Have any of you heard of him? Ray Vanderlaan? Sure. Here's some stuff he pointed out. Okay, so first of all, if, you, if you've read the Bible much, you know that there's a number in the Bible that's kind of special. Anybody know what that is? Seven. Yeah. You know, God rested on the seventh day and, you know, farmers were commanded to let the land rest on the seventh year and, you know, anyway. So did you notice that Matthew took pains to point out that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to the birth of Christ. 14 is a number divisible by? In the original language, according to Ray Vanderlaan, I am not a Hebrew scholar, so I can't verify this, but he says that the total number of words in this genealogy is divisible by seven. The number of letters is divisible by seven. The number of consonants and the number of vowels is divisible by seven. You could not write one sentence like that. And neither could I. And neither could Matthew. So again, don't, don't get weirded out. I'm not talking about some hidden Bible code here that I'm going to reveal to you. But it's just the, the perfection of this. The order of this was just an illustration that... God had it all under control. 
Second thought, he's unbelievably merciful. If you could control your family tree, who would you put in it? I mean, if you could get in a time machine, come on, be honest, you have some ancestors that you'd leave out. You know, and you might plug in an athlete or two and maybe some statesmen, inventors, smart people. I'd put in some better looking people. (laughs) By the way, wrap your head around this. Jesus did control his family tree. John tells us that he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. And so as crazy as that sounds, being part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he created his own ancestors. Is that nuts? Jesus, come on, man. Some people here you probably should have left out. And I want you to notice that along with, you know, there were good and holy people, but there were also adulterers, cheaters, and idolaters, just peppered all throughout this genealogy. You know, let's let's look at some examples. Let's start with Abraham, who lied more than Pinocchio. (laughs) Jacob, whose name meant cheater, he would put any Las Vegas card shark to shame. Boy, then there's Tamar. There's one of those ones I said, pay attention to this one. That's a story. Remember that whole deal? Pretty ugly. After her husband, Ur, died, she dresses up like a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her, getting her pregnant so he'd be forced to care for her. None of us would go to that movie. And don't let Judah off the hook. He was willing to sleep with a woman he thought was a prostitute. And then there's Rahab, who really was a prostitute. Matthew points her out. She was the one, if you remember, that hid the Israelite spies. And then there's the whole David and Bathsheba incident. Matthew points that out as well. Just so we wouldn't miss it, he points out the husband of Uriah. You know that whole deal. He sees her bathing, lusts after her, brings her to the palace, has sex with her, gets her pregnant, and in the whole cover-up scheme has Uriah murdered. And Matthew points all of that out. Matthew, I'd leave that stuff in the closet if I were you. Leave those skeletons where they are. And so goes the list of Jesus' ancestors. Not a very pure family tree. Not what you want to find on Ancestry.com. And not only does Matthew not 
try to cover up some of the more shameful ancestors, he actually goes out of his way to point them out. Why? Simple, really. (laughs) To give you and I hope. To show the grace and the mercy of God. To show that Jesus came to seek and save lost people. To show that the symbol of our faith is a cross, not the scales. Well, here's a third thing. Uh, The gospel is unhesitatingly inclusive. Let's dig a little more into this genealogy. First of all, there are four women mentioned. Now, you have to understand that in that day, people typically did not mention women in genealogies. Okay? It was a very exclusive patriarchal culture where, quite frankly, women were second-class citizens. By the way, Jesus changed all of that. But mentioning women in a genealogy just wasn't done. And there are also Gentiles listed in this genealogy. Rahab and Ruth were not only women, they were Gentile women. And, and along in this list of kings and important people, there are also people that the world would consider nobodies, especially as we get closer to the birth of Jesus. And in fact, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was a blue-collar worker, carpenter. Not a king, not a priest, not a statesman. So the lesson is simply this, that God accepts all people regardless of race, sex, or status. It's what Paul had in mind when he wrote these words from Galatians 3. You all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. None of that matters, he says. You are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I don't know how many of you are in small groups that discuss the sermon, but there's a question about what in the world does that mean that if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's seed. So you can give that some thought before you meet with your group. This is a new covenant. This is a new covenant where status, heritage, position, none of it matters. This is a new covenant where everyone enters the kingdom the same way, by grace, through faith. So those are three things that I see that we can learn. And then we're going to make some practical applications. But God's undeniably sovereign. He gets the last word. Unbelievably merciful. And the gospel is unhesitatingly inclusive. So what difference does it make now? I've got just a little laundry list of bullet points here. First of all, it means that when Christ came, faith replaced spiritual heritage. The Jews, I'm going to give you a hint now on that small group question. The Jews were all about pointing to Abraham. They said, we're we're children of Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. 
So right away, in the very first chapter of the Jesus story, God trumps heritage with faith. Right away, in the very first chapter, he teaches us that background and history doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. None of it does. Faith matters. Secondly, it teaches us that God still has a plan and he's still in control. If he could orchestrate all of this, don't you think he can handle your stuff? If he could orchestrate all of this so perfectly to bring Christ into the world, in the words of Paul, in the fullness of time, don't you think he can handle your stuff? Don't you think you could afford to relax a little bit? Any NFL fans here? Football fans? Okay, okay. So... In, in my work, I'm typically driving home from somewhere on Sunday afternoon. So I don't get to watch football games. And so, by the way, I'm a Broncos fan. And they, I know yesterday was ugly. Uh, Steve Bailey was rubbing it in pretty bad this morning. And and my Broncos haven't been on TV much lately because, quite frankly, they haven't deserved it. But if I see they're going to play, I'll record it. You ever do this and then try to not see what the score is so you can watch it as if it's live? You ever do that? Okay. So I try to do that, but more often than not, one of my sons will text me or somebody else and they'll give it away. So if my team won, I'll go ahead and watch the game. If they didn't, I won't, because why torture myself? (laughs) But I've noticed the incredible difference in my demeanor and attitude when I watch a game knowing the outcome versus not knowing that. You know what I'm saying? So if if I'm watching live, my team's quarterback fumbles or throws an interception, I start losing my mind. What is wrong with you? If I'm watching a recorded game and I know in the end we win and my team fumbles or throws in an interception, I don't get shook up. It's like, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. (laughs) Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen, I heard one preacher say this. This is not original with me. I don't know who said it first. But he said, I've read the last page. We win. And so one of the things the genealogy of Christ teaches me is that I can trust God's plan and God's sovereignty. If, if you could get into a time machine and go back maybe during the time of the exile or the time that David messed up with Bathsheba or something and you knew that this was the lineage to the Messiah, you would have thought to yourself, this is not going so well. This is not going to work out at all. Same thing you do with your life now from time to time.
when you hit a snag. You're tempted to think, this is not going well. Guess what? (laughs) Guess what? You don't know. Just relax a little bit. God's sovereign. He has a plan. He's in control. Uh, Hit a couple more. God uses repentant sinners as another lesson. I love this. I love this. I love this. I, I understand they're unrepentant sinners in Jesus' family tree, but the ones who are mentioned as heroes of the faith later in the New Testament, people like David and Rahab, are people who had turned from sin in faith. And God still uses repentant sinners to bring Messiah to the world. In fact, it's the stories of repentant sinners that gain credibility for the message of the gospel. Another one. I'm not a victim of my past. Hebrews 11 is often called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's a list of people who were noted and honored for their faith. And by my count, at least six People in Jesus' genealogy are listed here. Among them are Abraham the liar, Jacob the schemer, Rahab the prostitute, David the adulterer and murderer, but here's the deal. All of them went on from their failure to live lives of righteousness by faith. They were not held captive by previous decisions, and neither are you. That ought to get an amen. But if I have to ask for it, it doesn't count. (laughs) You know, guys, it's like... If your wife has to ask you to tell her you love her, it doesn't count. So... Not victims of my past. Here's another one I like. My family's legacy is still being written. I love this. Families go through stuff, don't they? You know, some of you might be tempted to think, but you don't understand what a mess my family is. We've got, in my family tree, we've got abuse and neglect and Sin and failure and divorce. Or you might have adult children that have turned from the faith, drive you to your knees. I promise you, your story is still being written. Your family's legacy is still being written. And Matthew opens the door on Jesus' family's tree to show us those skeletons, just to show us there's nothing God can't redeem. So, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know what's, what's going on with your family. I, I, I do know that probably, as I said earlier, most of our families aren't as neat and clean as the pictures on Facebook. But I'm telling you this, our sovereign and faithful God is at work. And don't you dare count the score at halftime. The history and the legacy is still being written. 
Bottom line is this, and then I'm done. God accepts me. Mm. Background, social status, family of origin, blue collar, white collar, past failures, baggage, brokenness, none of it matters. By grace, through faith, I am accepted. Because Jesus came to die in my place. So you, uh, I don't know what you need to take away from this. Maybe you're not convinced God accepts you, so you've been kind of pushing him away, thinking I need to clean up my act a little bit first. Let this genealogy tell you that God longs to forgive you and redeem you. Maybe you've been resisting serving in some capacity because you don't think you have it together. He uses repentant sinners. In fact, your story is the most powerful tool you have to lead other people to Jesus. Having trouble trusting your life to their heavenly father, problems, circumstances you can't see turning out well, he is sovereign, and if he can bring the savior to the world, he can handle your stuff. Family a bit of a mess, don't give up. Your family's legacy is still being written. I'd like to pray with you. Heavenly father, I just wanna thank you so much for this chapter of scripture that we're tempted to skip over so many times understandably it's not very exciting unless we dig a little thank you for the lessons that come to the surface regarding your character and how your character affects life 2,000 years later so Lord Jesus I just pray that you would uh, do your work in our hearts today whatever work that needs to be Teach us to live by faith and teach us to trust your sovereignty. It's in the precious and powerful name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Thank you for your attention. God bless you.